I can say it's already been a great blessing to be in worship with you this evening. I'd like to draw your attention to Mark the 8th chapter. I mean, in Mark chapter 8 and verse 27, we read, And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But some say Elias, and others one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answered and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and of scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man? If he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul. Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, I started looking at this passage of scripture um, several months ago. And I felt like it was burdened with the Lord to try to bring a message from um, some of the places that studying this passage took me. And one message turned into two, and two to three, and three to four, and five to six, and six to seven. And this will be about the eighth time. I've been brought back to an idea that came from this passage of Scripture. So if you've heard any of these previous messages or if you've listened to any of them, I don't think this is going to be a repeat. I think we're going to be on a completely different trajectory than I've been directed previously. But there are a few principles that we have to establish before we can really start unpacking this specific passage of Scripture. And one thing that is uh, really Western literature has taught writers throughout many centuries of perfecting the art of writing is that one thing you do when you're fixing to go into maybe a paper, especially if it's a really long book, you set some parameters for your argument. You say, this is what I believe, and this is what I don't believe, and then you elaborate on that. I think there's one important thing to remember tonight before we dive into anything else. Tonight I want to talk to you about some of the a more more uh, in-depth or alternate meanings of the cross. You know, the cross uh, represents a wide variety of things, and it means a wide variety of things to us. Now, first and foremost, as it relates to our salvation, I don't believe there's anything special about the physical substance of the cross that Jesus Christ suffered on. But I'll tell you today that as we consider the cross and we consider what Jesus Christ did on the cross for his people, when he shed his blood, we can go ahead and establish that we had nothing to do with that. That was only Christ's blood. That was only Christ. That was only his work. He was the perfect lamb of God who was capable of taking away the sins of his people. And he did that. And he said, it is finished. That wasn't a metaphorical statement. That was not figurative in nature. That was not he was not using poetic license. He said, it is finished because it was indeed finished. I submit to you this evening, that is not only a parameter 
We need to remember as we consider some of these principles this evening, that is a principle that should infuse your life with a greater sense of joy and purpose than anything else upon the face of this earth. Nothing that you do on a daily basis has to do anything with your own self-interest. Christ has secured your eternity. Your life is hid with Christ and God. Oh, when we realize that fully, the gratitude that ought to fill our hearts and souls, the lengths that we ought to be inspired to go to serve Christ in a better way. Because he's paid the ultimate price, the ultimate sacrifice. Yes, he suffered on a cross. Yes, it was on top of Calvary. Yes, it was somewhere over across the ocean. In reality, that's not as important. Yes, those places are special to us. But the fact of the matter is, Christ bled. He died. The wrath of God was released upon him and he paid for the sins of his people. Now, as we're reading about these circumstances leading up to the death of Christ... We've already observed a very important character in Jesus' ministry. Peter. And man, Peter was quite a guy. I don't know exactly what type of personality that he had, but I think people would qualify him as having a very big personality. Because he seems like he's always the first one to speak up. Probably a very violent, calloused um, individual. He made his living fishing which was not exactly the most peaceful and secure type of job. If you want job security, don't go be a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee, especially when boats were about the size of this pew that Brother Tim was sitting on. Not exactly a secure job. And Jesus asked his disciples this incredible question. He says, whom do men say that I am? And they tell him, some say John the Baptist, others say Elias, and others one of the prophets. And his question becomes even more specific. He says, no, essentially, not who do men say that I am now? Who do you say that I am? Who do you as disciples say that I am? And Peter says, thou art the Christ. And Jesus tells him elsewhere in the Gospels when he utters this statement, he says, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. This is nearly an irrational or supernatural confession that Peter is making. He has just looked at this fisherman, this man that is nothing out of the ordinary. He has wandered across Israel for his entire life. He seems to belong to no man. He's not educated, yet he's going around healing people, teaching these miraculous things that no one can really understand. And Peter looks at him and he says, you are the Christ. You're not just John the Baptist. You're not just Elias. You're not one of the major or minor prophets. You are the son of God. And so Jesus, after he's made this incredible confession, he begins to teach them more about himself. And one of the important things that he's going to teach them is that the Son of Man, as they had thought, was not upon the earth to establish an earthly kingdom. He was not there to restore Israel to its formal formal glory. But he was there, as we're told in verse 31, to suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and of the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Peter is an important figure in this. Because Peter is just a, an incredible example. There's a reason Peter is present in the scripture. 
He wasn't just one of the disciples of Christ. He was that. I'm sure he was an incredible, powerful preacher. It seems like he wrote prolifically. He wrote um, two of the books of the Bible, First and Second Peter. Um, and yeah, I think his life was, was a real struggle at times. Because he goes from making this statement to at the point in Jesus' greatest hour of need, he's cursing Jesus' name and denying that he ever even knew Christ. And part of the reason that the main verses that we're going to consider follow up this incredible confession of Peter's is because it's exemplifying something about our lives. You go read about another character in just a chapter over for the one we just read in, who comes to Jesus with a child possessed by demon. Talk about something frightening and mind-numbing. That's not something we deal with at perhaps as explicitly as they dealt with in the Gospels. But at times, children possessed by demons, they'd run and they'd jump into the water and try to drown themselves. They'd run into the fire and burn themselves. You know, in modern day times, this would be a child that was so possessed that would try to run out in front of a car or harm themselves or something horrible like that. And this man brings his child to Jesus and he says, you know, I don't, please heal my child. And Jesus says, if, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And this man cries out, can you imagine the affliction of his soul? That which he dearly loves is being tortured by this demon, his child. He says, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. This attitude of Peter, the attitude of this man here. I submit to you this evening, the vast majority of our lives, we're not going to be on our knees with our hands in the air, giving all the glory to God, feeling assured of his existence and of our salvation as we have ever been. The vast majority of our lives will be on our knees saying, Lord, I believe, but please just help my unbelief. I'm too imperfect to believe perfectly. I try to walk as if you do indeed exist. I try to act as if you exist. More importantly, I try to act as if you shed your blood for my sins. But I forget in my unbelief because I'm an imperfect human being. And those imperfections, I believe, inspire Jesus to tell us something very important. Remember, Peter's just made an incredible confession. As soon as the Lord starts to tell him some of the harder truths involving his ministry, people, Peter began to rebuke the Son of God. Now, you know, you and I might think that if there were any point in Peter's life where he might realize who he was rebuking, it would have been now. The Lord has just said, well, who do men say that I am? And the disciples said, well, you know, maybe John the Baptist, maybe Elias, maybe one of the other prophets. He says, but who do you say that I am? Peter says, the Christ, the son of the living God. Sort of like, duh. He's like, I know exactly who you are. I've been with you all this time. I've seen you perform these miracles. You are the good master. You were sent from God. You're the Messiah. And then Jesus says, well, yes, I'm the Messiah. I'm going to be ridiculed and scorned by all these people. And then I'm going to die on the cross and I'm going to rise again after three days. And then Peter decides that maybe Jesus is not exactly who he thought he was, perhaps. And he begins to rebuke him. Then Jesus says, God forbid that this would ever be us. Get thee behind me, Satan. 
For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also. I think it's, inc- it's noteworthy when Christ is either attracting people or he's drawing people to him. You know, many times he revealed incredible truths to the disciples when they were ju- it was just the disciples with him. Um, case in point, the Mount of Transfiguration. But also there were times when Jesus called people to him because he was about to say something important. I believe this is a moment where he is about to say something that is crucial to the life of a disciple of Christ. And he says, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You know, I hope and I pray for everyone in this building and everyone in the United States that would openly proclaim that they are a disciple of Christ, that they will ne- none of us will ever have to suffer the physical pain of a cross. I hope that no Christian throughout the end of the world will have to suffer that pain. You know, I doubt any of us have had to experience that. I'll say that none of us have probably experienced that pain. You know, but the likelihood of any of us having to bear the pain of a physical cross, a literal cross, is very slim. Simply put, there are far many other methods of execution that are used in modern society. There may come a time where you were called to suffer for the name of Christ. There may come a time where all of us are called to suffer for the name of Christ. I would assure you today, I don't do it as regularly as I ought to, but especially for the Primitive Baptist Church, I bear that they would face that fate and that pain unflinchingly and look their persecutors in the eye and say, yes, I believe that Jesus is Lord, and not only do I believe that Jesus is Lord, I believe that he effectually cleansed me of my sin. But Jesus is not necessarily talking about the pain of a literal cross. Some of his disciples would go on to suffer that death. But he's also talking to many other people who would not. He's talking to some people that would heed his warnings elsewhere in the Gospels, and they would leave Jerusalem. And they would go out to the many cities of the world surrounding Jerusalem in the Middle East, and they would begin to spread the message of Jesus. And rapidly, that would take fire with more people, and those people would share with people, and those would share with others. And before even a mere 200 years had passed, Christianity was one of the largest religions on the face of the planet. He's talking to some of those people who would die peacefully in their beds after a lifetime of serving Christ. He's talking to some people that uh, would stay in Jerusalem and would be killed when Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans. You know, and he's talking to some of his disciples who might die of the death of a physical cross. I think the important thing to remember tonight, the thing that has been on my mind quite a bit of late, is that for us, the cross is just a symbol of self-sacrifice and self-denial. And I want you to think about what occurred on the cross with Jesus. It was Jesus sacrificed. Jesus Christ was sacrificed on the cross. He was the Lamb of God. And His blood was shed to take away the sins of His people. But on a daily basis, we are all called to carry a cross. Again, I don't, we're not carrying our um, massive wooden crosses in on our shoulders this evening. 
But are there things that you ought to lay aside this evening? I know there are many of those for me. There, As I consider a life of discipleship, as I consider the teachings of Jesus Christ, there are things that I need to figuratively sacrifice and lay aside. This cross means to... Uh, the word cross means to stand upright. It means, uh, it means to uh, stand up. It eventually means to stand upright. Primarily, it means self-denial, as we've stated. But then eventually... If you continue to trace the word throughout the narrative of Scripture, begin to understand that it's also talking about, um, you know, standing and sacrificing. This is a very, very interesting word. Because what, what does Paul tell us in the book of Ephesians? He says, you know, for you wrestle not against flesh and blood. And you're wrestling against all of these incredible powers. But after you've done all... After you feel like you've done all that you can do and you've raised the shield of faith so many times that it feels like your arm couldn't do it one more time. And you've struck out with the offensive weapon of the spirit so many times it feels like you couldn't do it one more time. And you've strapped on your spiritual shoes so many times it feels like you couldn't do it again. And you've been hit so many times in your spiritual helmet that you feel like you can't take anymore. Paul tells us having done all we are to stand. We are to stand. And that is the principle here. Because we're getting up every day and we're each picking up our own burden. Paul had his burdens, did he not? Did he not have his thorn in the flesh? And he besought God three times to take it away from him. And he realized that finally, after he had beseeched God again and again to take away this one sin that was eating away at his soul, he realized that his strength, God's strength was made perfect in weakness and he was just to bear it. That was his thorn. Do you wonder why he uses the word or why we've adopted the word, you know, thorn? Jesus dealt with some thorns, did he not? Literal and metaphorical. Because that thorn is digging in Paul's side and he's having to just stand up, continually bear his cross and take it. And the interesting implications of doing this is that. Jesus says there are some advantages to doing this and there are some consequences for not doing it. And he goes on and he details those in uh, verses 35 through 37. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, what are we talking about here? Remember, we're, we're discussing these verses within you know, the analogy of the cross. So when you take up your cross, you're not going to have to physically lose your life. Christ did for him. But what Christ had to do is he, did, he lost his life. When you take up your cross, figuratively, you're losing your life. Are you with me? And so whenever, whenever you take up your cross, you know, there's an aspect of your life that's dying. There's an aspect of your life that's uh, being lost. And so when you take up that cross, when you take up your spiritual cross, if you decide not to take up your spiritual cross because you're afraid you might lose part of your life. Christ says, if you save your life in that way, by not taking up your cross spiritually, you're losing it. 
and the spiritual and the kingdom of God, when you refrain from taking up your cross, there's an aspect of your life that you're losing. Remember, we're not talking about physical death here. For Christ, we were. But when he tells his disciples, take up your cross, he's saying, disciples, when you choose to save your life by not taking up your cross in a spiritual sense, you've just lost it. And when you choose to hang upon the cross of self-denial on a daily basis, you have gained your life. Because he, he asks a very beneficial question in verse 36. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? There's a couple things. Remember what we established before. I thank God that this evening, none of your souls are in my hands. Because I know this. I know this from many long hours of playing football out behind the church. That I don't have the best hands. Submit to you today that there's a few marks on even the best wide receivers um, stat- statistics in the world today. Nobody has flawless hands. I'm so immensely thankful to stand here tonight and realize that not only none of your souls are in my hands and my soul is not in any of your hands. Your soul is held in the nail scarred hands of Christ. Amen. Although he may have let men mar his hands. He tells us in John chapter um, John chapter 10 that our souls are held in the hands of his father, God, the father. And no man is able to pluck the souls of his sheep out of the father's hand. So what are we talking about here this evening? Well, that word lose your soul is incredibly interesting. It means to damage it. And again, words are so interesting in scripture And I'm thankful for the translators who translated uh, the King James Bible so ably because you're able to trace those words all the way back through the New Testament. And you begin to see that that word lose simply means to tame. Because there is a creature inside of you that is roaring, that is groaning, that you can slowly tame by refusing to take up your cross. Because here in this world, we are struggling against something that is very powerful. An influence that is a lot of times predominant in our lives. You know, we're self-interested. We're nasty. You know, there was a uh, mid-century philosopher that qualified life as nasty, brutish, and short. You know, because, and what we began to realize is that when we oriented our systems of government... Specifically, our economic systems around the belief that human beings were self-interested, prosperity skyrocketed because people are self-interested. You can't orient a system of economics around the idea that, oh, people are just going to help each other. They're all going to, you know, dish all the money out of their pockets to all the poor people they see around them. History has proved that to be false. But what history has proved is that the predominant element of human nature is self-interested and most of the time nasty and depraved. We're fighting against that. And when you allow that to grow, there is an aspect of your nature that grows fainter and fainter. 
less than the uh, last remaining section of our time, look with me at a very well-known verse in Romans chapter 8. And we're going to observe a few things about the creature as we have termed it. And then draw a few connections back to the passage that we have just considered. Because in Romans chapter 8, we are told that there is indeed a creature. And that is the creature that we all want to nurture. You know, Romans also establishes other elements of human nature. Like in Romans chapter 7 where Paul cries out eventually. He goes through all of these different details. He says, you know, that that which I want to do, I don't. That's what the spiritual aspect of me wants to do, I don't do. And that which the spiritual aspect of me doesn't want to do, that's what I do anyway. And he finally reaches this conclusion. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Praise God. He answers his question in the next chapter. Because there is a man who will come with the sound of the trumpet and the voice of the archangel to rescue the wretched people on this earth from their bodies of death. And that's what Paul is talking about because there is an element of each born again child of God that roars within them. It doesn't like this earth. It doesn't like the environment that it's in. It wants to be free. And the more you cultivate that and the more you feed that aspect of your nature, things which are spiritual, things which are pure, things which are lovely, I submit to you that aspect of your nature becomes predominant and it begins to Fight against the aspects of your flesh which would condemn you to misery, you know, to ruin, to this horrible lifestyle of selfishness and greed. And we read about that in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18 when Paul says, you know, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, uh, notice sufferings cross, um, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestations of the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. I would submit to you this evening, there is a creature within each born-again child of God that groans against the condition of this earth. Now, the earth as a whole groans too. It's been afflicted by sin. When Adam sinned, there were all manner of physical curses, natural curses that were passed upon this earth. This earth is no longer the beautiful place that God created it to be. It is broken. And we don't, we can't lay that um, to God's charge. Human beings, Adam was the one who disrupted the pattern of goodness that God had laid out in the universe. Adam disrupted that. But this creature groans within born again children of God. It's waiting for, as he later on says, the adoption to wit the redemption of our bodies. Because the perfection of born-again children of God's spirits does not resonate with the imperfections of the flesh. They are at odds. They're warring against, Paul says, my members are warring against each other. Because on the one hand, he feels these physical proportions to do things 
which, you know, are against the word of God and that God has told him not to do. And then on the other hand, he's feeling these physical emotions of guilt that the spirit of God generates within him whenever he's considering sinning. And he's caught betwixt these two worlds and he doesn't understand what to do. Because on the one hand, he's being encouraged to sin by the natural carnal desires of his flesh. And on the other hand, the spirit of God is tugging against that, telling him not to listen. See, those are the creatures that are warring within us when we refuse to take up our cross. When we refuse to take up our crosses of self-denial. The carnal aspects of our nature become predominant and more influential than the spiritual aspects of our nature. Because that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying if you refuse to take up your cross and deny yourself on a daily basis to sacrifice That which you love most in my name, there's an aspect of your spiritual life that you are losing. Praise God, that doesn't have anything to do with eternal salvation. Again, yes, eternal salvation is related to a cross, but it's not related to any cross that you will ever need to worry about. This is Christ's cross that he bore, that he bore for his children, and he bore it up his shoulder, and he carried it up the hill. And he was hung upon it. You know, and his blood ran down that roughly hewn cross. And the land went dark. And the wrath of God was poured upon him. So you would never have to experience that. None of his children would ever have to experience that. I'm thankful for that this evening. But his response. The way that he follows up his assurance that yes, I'm going to suffer and die. And I'm going to be risen again. And these things will purge you of your sins. He says, in honor of me, I believe, in remembrance of Christ. Take up the task of self-denial. Take up the task of sacrifice. It may not be your life. It may not be your physical life. It may be at one point or another. I hope we never reach that point in the United States of America again. You know, I wish that's going on in the world today. I wish it would stop now. I wish you know, that were not a reality. But the other blatant reality about life is that there are certain aspects of life that are just comprised of suffering. And this has been a debate throughout eons of time. Is what is life? What compels human beings to get up every morning? Is it happiness? Is it satisfaction? What infuses life with a sense of meaning? And you know what? Many, many, many of them have come to the conclusion that life is not about happiness. It's about suffering. That's just so shocking to me that some of these philosophers would have any array of options at their disposal. And they would say life is about suffering. The way that we infuse life with meaning is to adopt Suffering to reconcile ourselves with suffering and realize that we're often called to suffer. That, I believe, is their born-again spirits speaking to them. Because they realize that life is not about carnal satisfaction. It's not about indulging in the least inclination that, that comes to mind. It's not about satisfying all of the horrific and carnal urges that just wreak catastrophe on the world. It's about denying Yourself, those. Because this idea that there's a creature within born again children of God, the implications are honestly mind blowing, to say the least. 
Because you start to look throughout history and you see these patterns of behavior that are nearly inexplicable by any other means than to say that that person has been gifted with a spiritual conscience. And the reason that many of those writers have come to the conclusion that life is about suffering is because there is a creature within them that testified conjointly with their spirit, as Paul says, that life requires self-denial. This pattern of discipleship, the way that we experience the affirmation of the Holy Spirit is self-denial and self-sacrifice. Again, praise God, we're not concerned about sacrifice as it relates to eternal salvation. But I think as evidence throughout uh, many writings, most notably Scripture, and most reliably Scripture, and most importantly Scripture, you know, life of discipleship is oriented around bearing our own crosses. And bear with me with this thought as we close. Again. Eternal salvation has nothing to do with our individual crosses. Yeah, but the reason the reason that Christ hung on the cross alone, you know, he had someone to temporarily help him bear that burden as he went up Calvary. But when it came to bearing the wrath of God, he bore that on his own. He did right. that on his own. The reason that he hung on the cross alone is the same reason that you and I each have our own crosses we have to have our individual crosses because the same the things that I'm called to sacrifice are not the things that all of you are called to sacrifice. The things that you may be called to sacrifice are not the things that I'm called to sacrifice. Someone can help you bear that cross, but there comes a time where you decide, what is it that I'm called to sacrifice? What have I missed in my life that could... Just be thrown out the window. Um, I pray that we would seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit in that. There a whole series of messages could be preached on what sacrifice looks like in a life of Christian discipleship. I think perhaps the inclination that I've received that other than the message I've tried to present, this passage of Scripture is closing for a time. But I would hope that it would be a topic of daily reflection. Because there are many things that we would do better without. Because someone that is willing to lose part of their life saves it. And somebody that is insistent upon saving certain aspects of their life often unwittingly loses it. Thankful for your time this evening.